You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe who helps people who feel far from God to know Jesus, cultivate freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We're also a diverse tribe who welcomes everyone from bikers to bankers, PhDs to GEDs, every age, race, and walk of life. So whether you're a longtime Christ follower or a spiritual investigator, we hope you're encouraged through our content. Enjoy today's teaching. As you take a seat, let me ask you, who among us right now would just love to offload some of your mental and emotional baggage that you've been carrying. Or let me ask it this way, who right now would benefit from recovering, getting back some of the mental bandwidth so that you can begin to think a little more clearly, so that you can begin to produce a little more peace in your life? I know I would. This week was crazy. Am I right? Well, something y'all might not know is here at City Tribe, every Thursday, Uh, Before anybody presents anything on the stage on Sunday, all of our team gets together and we evaluate whatever teachings are going to be presented that very Sunday. So this past Thursday, uh, the team gathered and I got to present the teaching that you guys are going to receive today and they got to edit and evaluate. And the team and our lead pastor, Doug Robbins, he asked a question. He said, hey, Lee, how has what you are going to teach affected you personally? And so I got to thinking about that, and I realized that what we're going to unpack today in the scriptures has actually liberated me in such a way that it has helped me reclaim some mental bandwidth, some emotional capacity so I can think more clearly, so I can experience more peace, so I can have a greater passion for life. So let me explain. So before I began studying and interpreting the scriptures, I, like many of you, simply received or inherited what uh, a good-hearted, well-intentioned preacher was communicating. And, you know, to no fault of their own, and maybe it wasn't their intention, sometimes what they imparted to me, what they imposed upon me was an unhealthy fear of God. Like, I would become so afraid that I wasn't giving to the church organization in a way that would be honoring of God such that I would become cursed. Like, I would live under a curse. I mean, that stuff's in the scriptures. And so, you know, I would wonder, like, okay, if the government takes away money, you know, takes away their taxes before I'm able to give to the church, well, then is God going to see that as me robbing him? Or is God going to, like, inflict me with some sort of medical condition? Or is this the reason why I'm not getting the jobs that I'm applying for? And I kid you not, I would lay awake at night, anxious some nights, just praying and begging God for forgiveness. Like, please don't let me total my car in order for you to teach me a lesson. Like, please don't let my car break down. And y'all, like how God was going to deal with my inability to live up to what has been recorded in the scriptures to live out what he desired for me. It occupied so much mental real estate for me. I lived in so much fear. And so I was burdened with a lot of heavy emotional baggage. And I imagine the same is true for many of you, right? I imagine that some of you, perhaps you grew up in a Catholic home, for example, Uh, you had imparted to you or imposed on you a belief that, hey, you need to go to confession or you need to make sure you're going to mass. Make sure you're praying the rosary and the Hail Marys because you just never know, right? Or make sure your baby gets baptized. Perhaps your grandparents told you something like that because God forbid, you know, we don't want them to go to hell. And so thankfully, you know, when I came to understand the scriptures that we are going to unpack today, it was liberating for me, 
right? I began to be at peace with my relationship with God. And I mean, more than just reclaiming back some mental capacity, some mental bandwidth and unloading emotional baggage, man, God like infused me. He injected me with a certain passion to want to teach what had liberated me, to want you guys to know what had liberated me, right? And he had given me uh, a desire to make sure that everybody is aware of all of this. Now I also have a confidence, an unswerved confidence that, you know, allows me to devote much of my mental energy not on what I am not doing and how I'm not behaving, but to what I can do and the purposes that I have been called to. And so my heart for us today and our conversation today is that you would experience just that. Y'all, my heart for you is similar to God's heart for us, man. I want y'all to feel liberated by whatever terrible theology perhaps that you have been carrying around and that it's taken a lot of your mental bandwidth. And so you can't focus on what you get to do, but you have to focus on what you have to do. And so today, as we continue in our series, part three of the series of teachings that we've called fruitful, what we're going to do is we're going to engage in yet uh, another of Jesus's world shaping stories. And in this world shaping story, it's going to help us evaluate our faith. And as we do, man, my hope is that your mind too will become liberated, that you will begin to offload some baggage that has weighed you down and burdened you so that you can live out your purpose. You can become what we've said in this series, fruitful. Now, as we've always done before we jump into today's teaching, let's just invite God by his spirit to speak to us. Y'all listen to this. Would you join me in also communicating to God with our bodies what we're saying with our words? That is, join me in what's called reflective posture prayer. And if you're not comfortable, you can just walk through the steps in your mind. Start by placing your hands under your eyes. Father, open my eyes. Help me perceive past this physical realm to see what's eternally true. Don't let me miss your activity in my life and the world around me. Father, open my eyes. Cup your hands around your ears. Father, I open my ears to you. Drown out any distractions. Help me hear your still, gentle voice. Help me pay attention with intention to know what you want me to know. I open my ears to you. Place your hands on your temples near your eyes. Father, I open my mind to you today. Calm my thoughts and center me on your perspective, your priorities, and your practices. Give me your counsel and help me make new connections. Father, I open my mind to you. Place your hand over your heart. Father, I open my heart to you. Give me your passion for justice and mercy. Give me your compassion for others. Father, I open my heart to you. Now hold both hands open in front of you. Father, I'm ready to receive from you. May I close off nothing. Work in me so I will never again be the same. In Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Amen. And so what do we have to do to begin to offload any emotional baggage that has burdened us and to begin to reclaim some of our mental bandwidth in order that we can begin to produce a little bit of peace and maybe live with some passion in our lives or become fruitful. Now, the answer to those questions require that we get a grasp on two concepts that Jesus, we're going to see him repeat and emphasize in the scriptures 
today. Now, the first of those concepts, it kind of reminds me of this. So y'all, I don't know if you know this, but I'm half Chinese. And being half Chinese, I got to grow up immersed in a lot of Chinese culture and Chinese traditions. And as such, you know, I get to sometimes speak about my experience. And sometimes my words about my experience are a little bit harsh, but nobody would say, man, Lee, you are racist for saying something like that. And I bring that up because when God himself, well, God revealed himself in the form of Jesus, he entered into a Jewish lineage. And Jesus expressed some very strong language concerning his own people's customs and their traditions at that time. And see, at the time when Jesus entered into the world, the Jews, they had observed what tradition holds was about 613 laws, requirements necessary for people to experience God's presence and his peace that included sacrifices. It included offerings. It included restrictions in terms of what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, restrictions in terms of what you could wear and what you couldn't wear, and all other sorts of ceremonies that people had to perform in order to have a right standing with God. And now there were religious leaders, religious Jewish leaders who had the best of intentions, right? They wanted people to be able to live out those requirements so everyone could experience God's presence and his peace. And what they began to do over time is interpreting those requirements in such a way that it put a heavy burden, a heavy load on people to be able to live out all of those interpretations. So much so that many people were left at arm's length and had no hope forever enjoying God's presence, entering into his kingdom. And I imagine like much like how I used to feel anxious at night, laying awake, wondering if God was going to smite me, if I was going to live under a curse. The many of those people who were kept at arm's length because there was no possible way that they can live out all of those laws and all of those interpretations. Well, they probably also felt that same anxiety and hopelessness and Jesus hated this. You see, when he saw his people were distressed and how their mental bandwidth had been taken from them and how they had been burdened with so much emotional baggage, he brokenheartedly grieved. He said, woe to you, experts in the law. Man, you load people with burdens that are hard to carry. You are weighing them down. You're taking their mental capacity. You're making them focus on everything they need to do and everything that they're not doing. Woe to you experts in the law. You have taken the key to knowledge about who God actually is. You didn't go in yourselves into God's presence, into his kingdom, and you have hindered. You have kept other people, those who were trying to go in from also doing the same. And so, y'all, Jesus' reaction, what it does is it reveals for us is that God's intent was never for us to be burdened by enjoying his presence or having the opportunity to enjoy his peace. And for this reason, when Jesus described his own people's system of traditions and customs and practices, this is why he used some strong words. All right, so while his heritage, his Jewish heritage is beautiful, his history is incredible, Jesus described the first century Jewish practices in this way. And this is our first concept that we have to get if we are all going to begin to offload our mental burdens and begin to produce peace. All right, Jesus used this word. You're going to see it repeated over and over in the scriptures today, old. All right, so when you see old, here is the picture that Jesus was trying to communicate. Old was a picture of like last year's crops, 
that are dried out and they're no longer of any nutritional value, right? You bite into them and they're crunchy. They taste horrible. Like you would just toss those out. Or it's also a picture of this plant that is like super old and just floppy. You know, it's lifeless. It's not producing anything. And so when you see old, Jesus was also using it to describe something that was ancient and antiquated and something that was worn out or utterly useless. Now he is using this again to describe the Jewish laws and traditions that were once required to experience God's presence. So when you see old today, Jesus is talking about all those 613 requirements and all the other interpretations associated with that. All right. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to that. Now let's enter into that second concept that we got, that we all need to be mindful of. It's a, a, something that Jesus repeatedly emphasized. It's going to help us reclaim our bandwidth and begin to produce peace. And the second concept that we're going to see over and over it is a reference to what Jesus taught about how God was going to uh, help us begin to experience his presence and enjoy his peace. At that time when Jesus started to introduce this, it went in one ear, out the other for people. It was incomprehensible over people's heads. They just could not wrap their minds around Jesus was what he was communicating. Now, today, 2000 years later, we all, we have the vantage point of history, right? You and I have the privilege of being able to look back at what's been recorded for us in the biographies that were written about Jesus and all of the letters that Jesus's earliest followers have prepared. And so what we know from all of that stuff that privilege of looking back is that God had planned to begin his reign over humanity via his Holy Spirit taking up residence in people, in you and in me, anybody who accepts and affirms that Jesus is God. Now, one of Jesus's earliest followers, Paul, he explained God's plan to reign from within people via his spirit in this way. Paul wrote, God wanted to make known, right? He wanted to reveal among all of the world, not just the Jews, right? The Gentiles, the glorious wealth of this incomprehensible idea, this mystery, which is now check out these next three words. What are they? Christ in you, Christ in you, this plan for you and for me to experience God's presence and to enjoy his peace and his prosperity for us to have a promise about our futures, right? To live a fruitful life. It begins with Christ's spirit in you. Jesus described this plan this way with the word new. And so when you see this word repeatedly in our study today, new, Jesus was painting this picture that's kind of like the antithesis of that first concept. Right, new was opposed to last year's crops that were dried out and not nutritional. No, it was this year's new harvest with these voluptuous and juicy fruits, something that was incredibly fruitful. Right? And it was like never before heard of, never before considered. And this new is superior to what it succeeds. So everything that preceded it is lesser than. It was unprecedented. And remember what Paul revealed for us that new is a reference to Christ in who? You. New is Christ in you. So today, whenever in our study, we see the word N-E-W, new, it means Christ in 
you. So I want to make sure that we get this. It's important to our conversation. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say new means, and you're going to say Christ in you. All right. I say new means, and you say Christ in you. All right. Here we go. New means. New means what? All right. New is Christ in you. Shout out to the little kid who screamed out loud. Appreciate you. Now, What is understanding these two concepts, the distinction between what Jesus said was old and what Jesus said was new? What does that have to do with us being able to offload any baggage, any mental, uh, reclaim mental bandwidth? And what does this have to do with us becoming fruitful so we have a peace of mind? Well, around 30 AD, Jesus began proclaiming to the Eastern Mediterranean world exactly what we're talking about right now, that God was unrolling. He was rolling out this unprecedented, never before considered, incomprehensible plan to begin his reign in humanity. And since God had planned for the new Christ in you, his spirit from within, that meant that whoever had accepted and affirmed Jesus as God no longer needed to practice what God himself, Jesus, described, defined as old or antiquated practices and traditions and customs. And so for onlookers who saw Jesus conduct himself in this brand new way, onlookers would have thought, okay, this guy is incredibly peculiar. And not only is he peculiar, but he's seemingly disrespectful to our God. For example, okay, Jesus taught that the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, that they were all about him, that they predicted his arrival. What? And then Jesus, he reinterpreted Jewish law and certain traditions such that on occasion, he didn't even participate in certain ceremonies. And Jesus observed the day of worship, the day of rest known as Sabbath, very differently than everybody else. He seemingly worked on that day. He healed, performed miracles, all sorts of stuff like that. And then Jesus went against the norm in that day for somebody who was a teacher of the scriptures, a rabbi, and he openly, publicly talked to women that he wasn't married to. What is this guy thinking? And even more interestingly, you know those people that were kept at arm's length because they couldn't live up to those 613 traditions, they couldn't live them out perfectly or any of the other interpretations, so they had no hope to ever have any sort of experience in God's presence? Jesus began to associate them. And he associated with them. And he associated with prostitutes. And he associated with adulterers. And he associated with greedy tax collectors, people who would backstab their own countrymen. And he began to associate with folks who weren't even educated. In uh, professions where folks in that day looked down upon them. To which the religious leaders in that day, seeing Jesus's conduct, seemingly irreverent, seemingly disrespectful, they said to him in a way as if to say, do you really think that kind of conduct is going to afford you the opportunity to enter into God's kingdom? Do you really think that kind of conduct or your lack thereof is what's going to help you experience God's presence and enjoy his peace? It's kind of funny. Luke uses some words that paint this picture that they're a whole bunch of like pigeons in a way that gather in a parking lot and they're like, coo, 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 right? They're complaining to Jesus. And so they complain in this way. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, right? These pigeons, coo, coo, coo. I mean, this other rabbi, John's disciples, they fast often and they say prayers, right? They're doing their best to live out these 613 requirements to enjoy God's presence. And those are the Pharisees. Well, hey, they do the exact same thing. But yours, Jesus, they eat and they drink. 
they're irreverent. And y'all, <laughs> how Jesus responded is partly why I feel so liberated. And I hope you hear it with fresh ears that you might begin to be liberated. Now, for you to get a feel for Jesus's response, how it would have landed on first century ears, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever purchased any extremely expensive, handmade designer garments of any kind, a shirt, uh, a purse, maybe some heels or something like that? You know, things that are like Gucci, Gucci, Louis, Louis, Fendi, Fendi, Prada, all that kind of stuff. Anybody purchased anything like that before? Oh, y'all lying, man. Nobody's. Yeah, no, you have. Well, here I got... Um, a cashmere scarf that I purchased many moons ago. And this cashmere scarf, because of how it was made, because of the materials from which it was made and where it was made, it was very costly at the time that I purchased it. And it bears the infamous plaid of the designer brand. Anybody know? Burberry. Wow. Yes, you have purchased designer stuff. Anyway, and so, you know, because it's so expensive, at the time that I purchased this, it was about $500. And I know, I know. Because it's so expensive, and because you guys pay me so little, like, I have valued this scarf for a really long time. I've taken care of it. I've enjoyed it. I've wrapped myself in it to protect me on cold days here in San Antonio, how few they are. But over time, I have worn it down in such a way that I've now handed, up, handed it off to my daughter, right? It's got holes in it. She wraps her babies in it and like drags it all over the concrete and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I've got some fond memories of this. And because my memories of this Burberry scarf are so fond, I'll be honest with you. Okay, recently, I used your money that you pay me and I bought another $500 replacement this fresh cashmere Burberry scarf. It's soft. It's perfect. Not yet worn. Fresh out of that little Burberry container. But because I have such fond memories of this old one, rather than beginning to wear this one, here's what I'm going to do. I would rather use parts of this couture scarf. The Lord is saying no. I'm just kidding. And I'm going to cut a piece, and I want to repair that hole in this other scarf. There we go. What do y'all think about that? I hear some, like, nervous chuckles. What's going through your minds? Honestly, let me hear it. What do y'all think about my decision to take a brand-new, unworn, perfectly good $500 scarf and try to repair this old, raggedy one? Let me hear it. Shouldn't have spent the money to begin with. You're crazy. Somebody in the earlier service, they said, man, this guy needs prayer. Look. <laughs> and so those very reactions, you're crazy. What are you thinking? That's such a waste of money. Those very reactions are what Jesus sought to elicit from his first century audience with his analogy. You see, in the first century, before there was Target, before there was H&M, before there were thrift shops, for that matter, people didn't have an abundance of clothing, right? Their closets didn't have to get Marie Kondo'd because they had so many articles of clothes. 
There wasn't factories, there weren't machines, and so new clothing, it was not easy to come by. In fact, 2,000 years ago, clothing, it was all custom-made, right? And it was couture, and it was costly because it came from your own stock of animals, right? Their wool, or perhaps you even sacrificed the animal, and you used the animal skin to make some sort of clothing. And so if someone in the first century did to their brand new garment, which took forever to loom and to make, if they did to their garment what I just did to this Burberry scarf, people would say, what are you thinking? You're an idiot. Why are you wasting something that is so good? No one in their right mind in the first century would take a brand new garment and cut it up to try and repair something that is old, that is antiquated, that is utterly useless. Now, remember what we said earlier. Okay, when Jesus said new, he referred to who? Christ in you. When Jesus said new, he referred to Christ in you. So let's take your reactions. What are you thinking? That's a waste. And let's combine it with what Jesus taught us, that new is Christ in you. And so here's how Jesus responded to the Pharisees about why his conduct looked just a little bit differently than theirs, all right? Jesus was essentially saying, look, in the way that it would be foolish for anyone to take a brand new garment that had never been worn, it was unprecedented, it was superior to what has been old, and they cut it up to repair something that is antiquated, in the way that would be foolish, it would be foolish of me to take my Holy Spirit, to pour it out, in order to put it on something that is old and antiquated, like practices, these 613 traditions. Jesus said it this way. It's recorded in Luke this way. No one tears a patch from a new garment. New is Christ in you, a reference to his Holy Spirit. He's not going to put his Holy Spirit and put it on an old garment, something that's antiquated and utterly useless, like that system of practices that burdened people. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment, it will not match the old. And so y'all, God himself, Jesus, he was abundantly clear that old and new, the old system of traditions and customs and practices that we read about in the Old Testament and his new spirit put in you, they do not mix. They do not blend. God's never before understood plan to put his spirit in you, to clothe you with his new garment that cost him his own life, the pouring out of his blood. It is a far superior way for you to experience God's presence, to enjoy his peace, to have a promise about your future. And here's partly why. You see, whenever you and I, when we accept and affirm that Jesus is God, part of Jesus' promise is that he will clothe you. He will pour out to you his Holy Spirit. And what that guarantees you is that you have an ongoing, constant, irrevocable access to our Heavenly Father. There is nothing you can do that He will take away His garment. Meaning that what Jesus was suggesting is it would be completely idiotic for Him to give you His Holy Spirit and then to also require you to continue practicing what He deemed as obsolete. See, as he taught, his spirit, his teaching, they are superior to anything that had been previously introduced in this world. And so y'all, be liberated. Be free, right? If you have accepted and affirmed Jesus is God, then his spirit clothes you, right? You have a new 
garment kind of life. And you don't need to participate in what Jesus deemed as archaic and utterly useless in order for you to enjoy God's presence, to experience his peace. Now, Jesus could have stopped there, but he didn't. See, and like a parent who repeats himself or herself to emphasize a point to their children, they're trying to get a point to their children. Jesus repeated himself. And you know, we say this all the time. I say this all the time here at City Tribe. When Jesus repeats himself, we had better pay attention because he's trying to get a point across to us. And what Jesus next said, it is further encouragement. It's further liberation for every single one of us. And what he had to say, what he reiterated, I want to ask it in this way. So have you guys ever seen something that is ancient or it's so antiquated, like an artifact, right? It's an antique that has become so aged that it's fragile and any mishandling of it, it like begins to fall apart. Like maybe you saw the Declaration of Independence, for example, which is actually not the real Declaration of Independence because it is so fragile that they won't even show you the real one. Or maybe you saw like Marilyn Monroe's dress, right? That for whatever reason, Kim Kardashian's the only one allowed to wear it, but it like deteriorates and it falls apart. Well, as somebody who used to collect sneakers, athletic, rare shoes, I uh, was once a sneakerhead, I would see collectors' age shoes fall apart all the time. And so, like, if sneakers were poorly stored, they weren't in air-conditioned storage units or something like that, well, over time, the glue, the adhesive that keeps the sole intact with the upper parts, well, it would begin to disintegrate and deteriorate. And so the sole would begin to flap. Have y'all ever seen shoes that, like, kind of talk? You know, they're saying hello to you, or you get to wiggle your toes, like, hey, guys, you know, something like that. Well, also, you know, over time, the leather would begin to dry out, and then it would crack, and then it would peel off. And the other materials, for whatever reason, they would harden, and then they'd become a, like, powdery-like substance. You know, when you open up a granola bar and everything starts falling apart, something like that. And so let's say, uh, you know, there's a pair of shoes like that. Well, they basically are good for nothing, utterly useless. They are purposeless. You cannot wear them. And one day... You invite me to go hang out with you. You're like, hey, Lee, let's do some sort of activity. Let's go for a walk on the river walk or, you know, let's go for a run. Let's play basketball. And I say, all right, yeah. And I meet up with you and you see me come in with some of those shoes. What is your initial thought? That's odd. That's not a wise decision, Lee. You know, these things, they're going to fall apart the second we start walking. You know, you're probably going to roll an ankle when your foot slips out. You're going to step into a puddle and your socks are going to feel all disgusting or something like that. It just isn't wise. And so that same response, yet again, is exactly what Jesus was trying to elicit from his first century audience as he continued in this parable, which helps liberate us and helps us feel a sense of peace. You see, in the first century, Jewish culture, wine served a very significant role. I mean, first of all, of course, yes, it was like a social drink that brought joy to people. They called it actually the drink of truth, because when you drink wine, the truth would come out. And then it was a medicine, right? They pour wine on your wounds to begin healing, or back before there was any Pepto-Bismol, you would drink wine to settle your stomach. And on top of that, wine was required a necessary part of the temple offering. So if you wanted a right standing with God, well, you needed to offer some really good wine. And because wine was such a significant portion of the Jewish culture in that day, well, people were very concerned about how they stored their wine. And much like how clothing was made back in the day, 
what people would do was they would sacrifice an animal and they would take the skins from the animal and they would somehow sew it together and create a sort of bottle or a bag that they got to store wine in. And, you know, similar to how like shoes over time that aren't well conditioned, they deteriorate well in the Eastern Mediterranean region under the hot sun. Over time, these animal skins, they would begin to dry out and they would become rigid and they would not be a suitable container for new wine, which those of you who drink alcohol, anybody drink alcohol in here, don't raise your hand. I mean, you know, if you drink beer, if you drink wine, tequila, something like that, you know that if it's under hot temperatures, what does it do? It expands, right? It produces a gas. And so if you put new wine into an old, rigid, raggedy, old wineskin, the wine would expand and or the wineskins would burst and the wine would fall out. And so your social drink, gone. Your medicine, gone. Your temple offering to be in right standing with God, gone. And by implication, you will have wasted all of your time pressing all of your grapes. You'll have wasted your resources killing a little animal, right, to make a bag. It would be idiotic. It would be full. You would say, what are you doing? Why would you put new wine into old wineskins? And so Jesus gave this analogy as if to say, look, in the same way that you guys would be like, why are you doing something so unwise by putting new wine into old wineskins? Well, you would say the same thing. It would be unwise of me, Jesus, to pour my spirit into people who are not receptive to me. They are rigid. They prefer dried out practices. See, what would be wiser of me is to take my new wine, my spirit, and to pour it into new wineskins. People who are willing to expand. People who are willing to grow. People who are willing to be suitable containers to take my truth, to take my joy, to take my healing, to take my hope out into the world. Jesus communicated this analogy this way. He said, no one puts new wine, new Christ in you, right? No one puts his Holy Spirit into old wineskins, people who are unwilling, unreceptive to what Jesus wants to do. Otherwise, the new wineskins, they'll burst. It will spill. The wine will spill. The skins, they will be ruined. No, new wine, my Holy Spirit is put into fresh wineskins, people who will receive me, who are willing to grow and expand and be a container for my spirit. So y'all be encouraged. Be encouraged because your capacity to experience God's presence and my capacity to experience God's presence, it has nothing to do with whether or not we look the part. It has nothing to do with whether or not we participate in old practices that Jesus said are antiquated. No, your capacity, my capacity to experience God's presence and his peace and his passion for life, it's all contingent upon whether or not we willingly invite his spirit to fill us, to expand us, to grow us, whether or not we willingly accept the purpose of going into the world to be a container for his new wine, which means if just like Jesus' earliest disciples, and this is encouraging, it means that even if you, like Jesus' earliest disciples, have a sexually promiscuous history, or maybe you got like multiple baby mamas, or you got a criminal history, a history of adultery, or there's things that you have done that you are so ashamed of, man, you want nobody to find out. You didn't complete your GED. You didn't complete high school. didn't go to college. You feel uneducated. The world has written you off. 
Man, Jesus, God himself, that is not a factor in whether or not you can experience his presence, right? According to him, as long as you invite him to stretch you, to uh, be filled with his spirit, you are primed to carry out his purpose. Man, you are a fresh wineskin that is suitable for taking his new wine anywhere you go. Can I get an amen, somebody? I mean, that is encouraging and liberating. Now, (laughs) this is pretty dope because Jesus wasn't done, right? Jesus wasn't done schooling these religious leaders. He wasn't done stacking all of these analogies, man. He just kept on repeating himself and repeating himself. And the fact that he did so, man, we have, we really have to pay attention because he's trying to overemphasize something here. All right. And what Jesus next expounded on, on why people so willingly return to what is old, right? They want to partake in what he considered these archaic practices. It is explained by what a lot of us coffee snobs experience. Now, coffee snobs, anybody up in here love to drink coffee? Okay, y'all might be able to relate to this cycle. So you wake up, you're a little groggy without energy. You decide, I'm going to drink coffee. And so for a little bit, you feel really good. And then after a lot of it, you feel really anxious. And then you decide, okay, I'm never drinking coffee again. That was a terrible idea. And then you begin to feel a little tired and uh, lethargic. And so the very next day you wake up and you decide, I need coffee. And thus the cycle repeats. And y'all, that depicts my struggle every single day. Because I've got this like huge caffeine sensitivity such that it really jacks up my stomach And I get like all sorts of gastrointestinal issues whenever I drink coffee. It's kind of like new wine and old wineskins, right? Something like that. I'm just kidding. No, but but I can't drink coffee past 1 p.m. because I will be up till 4 in the morning. And I certainly can't drink coffee before I board an airplane because I will have a panic attack. And the reason I know that is because I've had a panic attack. You know, I just go crazy with coffee. In fact, actually, my friend Mike is here. And one time I had coffee at his house and then I grabbed like all the brooms and I started cleaning their porch and all that stuff. You know, so I, you know, coffee just does something to me. And because it does something to me every single week, this is a joke in my family and among my friends, like I quit coffee and I decide to become a tea drinker. And, you know, tea, it's been around for thousands of years, multiple generations, of course. And it's got a whole bunch of proven antioxidants, like supposedly, you know, it prevents cancer and it's got lesser doses of caffeine. And so it's got this calming effect and all sorts of herbal kind of things that are involved with it. And so theoretically, tea is better for me. But is it? I mean, really? Because to be honest with you, it doesn't give me the same jolt, right? It doesn't give me the same alertness. It doesn't give me the same that I want. You know, like, I want to be wired. I want to have some energy when I'm preaching to y'all. And, you know, for my generation, tea just isn't the social drink of choice. We don't have tea parties. We go to coffee shops, right? And anytime I drink tea, I kind of just feel like a character in Downton Abbey or something like that. Now, here's my point with all of this. My point with all of this is essentially what I'm saying is despite the evidence, coffee is better for me. And what I'm saying is tea is not good enough. And in the same way, what Jesus revealed is the reason why so many people are married to what he called an antiquated way of experiencing God's presence through all sorts of performance of rituals and rules and all these kinds of things. It's because they are in effect saying, you know what? Despite the evidence, we believe 
that the practices that we have, the practices that we grew up with, they're better. And Jesus' spirit, not enough. Jesus explained that this way. He said, no one, after drinking old wine, people who partake in all of these practices, these 613 traditions and the interpretations of these Old Testament religious leaders, they don't want new. They don't want Christ in them because they say, the old is better. Are we saying with our lives that old is better? We don't believe that new Christ in you is good enough. See, according to God himself, Jesus, nothing that preceded the pouring out of his spirit is better for us. The now dried up practices are an utterly useless system of relating to God. It's nowhere near better. See, Jesus expressed that that kind of life, we said earlier, it'd be like feasting on crops from last year that have no nutritional value. There's no juice left. You see, Jesus, he was the perfect embodiment of every rule, every principle, every precept in the Old Testament. He perfectly interpreted what had been prescribed, and he perfectly fulfilled every requirement. And this is why Jesus suggested that following his way of life, it supersedes living out anything that we could read in the Old Testament, anything that we could practice. Look, we don't have to memorize 613 ceremonial rules or anything like that. We don't have to live with fear or anxiety. Like, what if I don't get this right? All we need is one. But we can reclaim our emotional capacity. We can reclaim our mental bandwidth. We don't have to worry about what we're not doing. Now we can focus on the purpose that we have been called to of taking his new wine into the world. I love how the author of Hebrews the letter to the Hebrews that's been collected in our Bibles, how he stated and explained that Jesus' spirit, it supersedes anything that it has succeeded. He wrote this. He said, Jesus has now obtained a what? Superior way of serving us, a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a what? Better, a better arrangement of how now God interacts with us and allows us to enjoy his presence, right? A better covenant, which has been established on what? Better promises. Look, does anybody other than me want a life of faith that is built on superior and better that actually produces peace and doesn't burden us with baggage and take from us our mental bandwidth? Come on. I don't know about you. I want the life that Jesus came to give us. I want the life that Jesus died to give us, poured out his blood to pour out his spirit in order that we would have. I don't want a kind of life or a kind of faith that is built on what God himself said. We're disintegrating like garments or dried up useless crops. You know, these wines that spill out or anything like that. Participating in his previously unprecedented, now revealed plan for the world, that is inviting Jesus' spirit to indwell us, reside in us, the new Christ in you. It is a far superior way of enjoying the promises that God has for us. 
This is how we reclaim our peace. This is how we unburden ourselves with all of this mental baggage. Jesus himself said it, and his apostles, they embraced it, and they lived by it. Y'all, we can be persuaded that a new wine kind of life is superior, and it's better. And so practically, what does this mean? Like, what exactly would it look like for us to be able to offload these mental and emotional burdens that we've inherited with poor theology, how do we reclaim our capacity and be able to focus on something more productive and purposeful with our lives? Well, we begin to produce peace, right? To enjoy a fruitful life when we stop focusing on what Jesus said was obsolete. You know, when we Stop focusing on practicing and performing all sorts of principles and rules and precepts that are embodied in the Old Testament. And when we instead start focusing on what the word of God made flesh himself embodies, what he taught, what he says, when we act on what Jesus has said and imitate what Jesus has done. Let me tell you, one of my friends, another pastor explained it to me this way. He said, people can practice. Everything that's been recorded in the accounts, the biographies about Jesus's life and the letters that have been written and collected that his earliest disciples recorded, right? Well, we call that the New Testament. People can practice everything that they read in the New Testament and they can experience eternal life and they can experience every promise and they can experience their best possible life. And what people could do if they so desired is practice only what's in the Old Testament, all the precepts, all those rules, all those principles. And they would have a beautiful life, a very moral life. But do you know what we call that, he said? A whole other religion. Not Christianity. And so what we do is we've got to build our lives on the word of God made flesh, Jesus, his spirit, his teachings. And then we interpret everything according to what this looks like for me practically. I don't apply anything I read in the Old Testament directly to my own life without first putting it through the filter of what Jesus modeled, what he taught through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Christ in you is superior. It is better. And so here's my encouragement to you all. It's actually Jesus's encouragement to us that you might be liberated that you don't have to lay awake anxious at night, wondering about your standing with God, wondering if you could ever have the opportunity to experience your best possible life. Jesus said it simply this way. He said, don't be afraid. Follow who is superior, who is better, me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. There's going to be all sorts of flavor of the week Dynamic communicators, flavor of the week, New York Times, best-selling books that are going to repackage all sorts of principles and precepts. And they're going to tell you, if you don't live out these practices, your life is going to be cursed. And so when you read that, I mean, eat the meat, spit out the bones, but don't be afraid. We have something far better, far more superior. New, Christ in you. So here's what we're going to do. Just a moment, the band is going to come out. And they're going to lead us in a song. The opening lyrics to the song are along the lines of like, I'm going to lay my burdens down. 
And my encouragement to you in this time of reflection is that you take to Jesus these burdens, these fears, these anxieties, these feelings of worthlessness, and you just lay them down. Because he said, don't be afraid. And then secondly, I encourage you to reflect that his way is better. And in just a moment, in the middle of the song, we are going to remember that truth by participating in a new tradition that Jesus introduced called communion. So those of you who came in, you were given a communion cup. Go ahead and get that ready. Don't yet start eating and drinking of the cup, but uh, prepare that. And then those of you joining us online, you do the same. And I'll be back here in just a moment to administer communion. But right now, let's lay our burdens down.
shortly thereafter, he took a cup filled with wine and he said, this cup, it is the cup of the new, Christ in you, the cup of the new covenant, my new agreement in terms of how we are going to relate together from now on. You're going to enjoy my presence and my peace and these promises. And so drink this in remembrance of me. So let's take this cup representing Jesus's blood. And let's remember how much better he is. For as often as you eat of the bread and you drink of the wine, the juice, you are proclaiming my Jesus's resurrection. That he has all power, all authority. Death could not hold him. He was raised to new life in order to pour out into us new life that his spirit, the new, might be in you. And so we don't need to be burdened. We don't need to be afraid. All you have to do, follow Jesus. His way is better.
Lord, that is both our request and our declaration. Just shake up all of our traditions that we've inherited. Break down all of these walls that have burdened us. And Lord, we just declare that we want to make room for you. That we want to be like expansive, fresh wineskins that you could fill into us your new Christ in us, your new wine, that we might take your truth, your joy, your peace, your healing and hope into the world anywhere we go. Lord, my prayer is that we would be a people, a tribe that trusts that your way is better, it is superior, that we would be a new wine people who aren't afraid but follow you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I just need to clarify one thing before I dismiss you. All of this was fake. I bought it off Amazon for $14. Didn't misappropriate your funds at all. But nevertheless, I love you guys. I hope you feel encouraged and liberated. We'll see you next week for part four of Fruitful. We're glad you were a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check the City Tribe YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, or our website, citytribe.church. May you go from this podcast knowing that you are loved.